Book 9, Part 1 of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Drew Altschul. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Naso. Translated by Brooks Moore. Book 9, Part 1. To him the hero, who proclaimed himself a favored son of Neptune, answered now, Declare the reason of your heavy size, and how your horn was broken. And at once the Caledonian river god replied, binding with reeds his unadorned rough locks, It is a mournful task you have acquired, for who can wish to tell his own disgrace? But truly I shall speak without disguise, for my defeat, if rightly understood, should be my glory. Even to have fought in battle with a hero of such might affords me consolation. Deanera, you may have heard some tales of her, was once the envied hope of many. She was then a lovely virgin. I, among the rest who loved this maiden, entered the fair home of her great father, Aeneas, and I said, Consider all my claims, Parthian son, for I am come to plead your daughter's cause and mine so you may take make me son-in-law. No sooner was it said, than Hercules, in such words, also claimed the virgin's hand, all others quickly yielded to our claims. He boasted his descent from Jupiter, the glory of his labors, and great deeds performed at his unjust stepmother's wish. But as he was not then a god, it seemed disgraceful if my state should yield my right. So I contended with these haughty words, why should this alien of a foreign land contending for your daughter match himself to me, king of the waters in this realm? For as I wind around across your lands, I must be of your people, and a part of your great state. Oh, let it not be said, because the jealous Juno had no thought to punish me by labors, my descent is not so regal. This tremendous boast that you, Alcmena's son, are sprung from Jove, falls at the touch of truth, or it reveals the shame of a weak mother who so gained your doubtful glory of descent from heaven. Prove your descent from Jupiter is false, or else confess you are the son of shame. But Hercules, unable to control the flame of his great wrath, scowled as I spoke. He briefly answered me, My hand excels my tongue. Let me now overcome and fight, and I may suffer your offensive words. Full of unvented rage, he rushed on me, but firm I stood, ashamed to yield a foot. I had so largely boasted, no retreat was left. And so I doffed my green robe, striking guard, with clenched hands doubled at my breast. I stood my ground. He scooped up his hand fine, yellow dust, and tossed it on the air so that the tawny powder sprinkled us, quick shifting. Then he sought to strike my neck or faint at my quick-moving legs, and turned swift-moving to attack me at all points. But as a huge cliff in the sea remains unmoved, unshaken by the sounding waves, so my great size against his vain attacks defended me securely. Back we went, retiring for a space, then rushed again together. Furious and with foot to foot, determined not to yield, defiant stood, till, forward bending from my waist and hips, I pressed my forehead against his and locked his fingers into mine. So have I seen two strong bulls rush in combat for the good of some smooth heifer in the pasture, while the herd tremble and uncertain wait, ready to give allegiance to the one most worthy of dominion. 
Thrice in vain Hercules strove to push my breast from his, but I pressed ever closer. Till the fourth attempt succeeding, he unloosed my grip, and breaking from my circling arms, drew back, and struck me such a buffet with his hand, it twisted me about, and instantly he clung with all his weight upon my back. Believe me, I have not suppressed the truth. Nor shall I try to gain applause not due. I seemed to bear a mountain on my back. Straining and dripping sweat, I broke his hold. With great exertion I unlocked his grip. He pressed upon me as I strained for breath, preventing a renewal of my strength, and seized upon my neck. Then, at last, my bent knee went down on the gritty earth. I bit the sand. So worsted in my strength, I sought diversion by an artifice, and changed me to a serpent. I then slipped from his tight clutches my great length, and coiled my body now transformed to snaky folds. Hissing, I darted my divided tongue. But Hercules, Alcides, only laughed, and in derision of my scheming said, It was pastime of my cradle days to strangle better snakes than you, and though your great length may excel all of your kind, how small a part of that Lernaean snake would you, one serpent, be? It grew from wounds I gave. At first it had one hundred heads, and every time I severed one from its neck, two grew there in the spill at place of one by which its strength increased. This creature then outbranching with strong serpents, sprung from death and thriving on destruction, I destroyed. What do you think will then become of you, disguised so in deceitful serpent form, wielding a borrowed weapon not your own? And after he had ridiculed me thus, he gouged his fingers underneath my jaws so that my throat was tortured, as if squeezed with forceps while I struggled in his grip. Twice was I vanquished, there remained to me a third form, so again I changed to seem a savage bull, and with my limbs renewed in that form, fought once more. He threw his arms about the left side of my ponderous neck, and dragging on me followed as I ran. He seized on my hard horns, and tugging turned and twisted me, until he fastened them firm in the surface of the earth and pushed me, helpless to the shifting sand beneath. Not yet content, he laid his fierce right hand on my tough horn, and broke and tore it from my mutilated head. This horn, now heaped with fruits, delicious and sweet-smelling flowers, the naiads have held sacred from that hour, devoted to the bounteous goddess Plenty. All this the river god said, then a nymph, a lovely nymph like a fair Diana dressed, whose locks were flowing down on either side, came graceful to the board, and brought to them of autumn's plenty in an ample horn, and gave to them selected apples for a second course. And now, as early dawn appeared, and as the rising sunlight flashed on golden summits of surrounding hills, the young men waited not until the stream subsiding had resumed its peaceful way, but all arose, reluctant, and went forth. Then Achilles, in his moving waves, hid his fine rustic features in his head, scarred by the wound which gave the horn of plenty. Loss of his horn had greatly humbled him. It was so cherished through his only loss that he could hide the sad disgrace with reeds and willow boughs entwined about his head. O oh, Nessus, your fierce passion for the same maid utterly destroyed even you, 
pierced through the body by a flying arrow point. Returning to the city of his birth, the great Hercules, the son of Jupiter, with his new bride, arrived upon the bank of swift Evenus, after winter rains had swollen it so far beyond its wont that full of eddies it was found to be impassable. The hero stood there, brave but anxious for his bride. Nasus, the centaur, strong-limbed and well acquainted with those fords, came up to him and said, Plunge in the ford and swim with unimpeded strength, for with my help she will land safely over there. And so the hero, with no thought of doubt, trusted the damsel to the centaur's care. Though she was pale and trembling with her fear of the swift river and the centaur's aid, this done, the hero, burdened as he was, with quiver and the lion-skin, for he had tossed his club and curving bow across the river to the other bank, declared, Since I have undertaken it, at once this rushing water must be overcome. And instantly he plunged in without thought of where he might cross with most ease, for so he scorned to take advantage of smooth water. And after he had gained the other bank, while picking up his bow which there was thrown, he heard his wife's voice anxious for his help. He called to Nasus, who was in the act then to betray his trust. Vain confidence, you are not swift enough, vile ravisher. You too formed monster Nasus, I warn you. Hear me, and never dare to come between me and my love. If fear has no restraint, your father's dreadful fate on whirling wheel should frighten you from this outrageous act, for you cannot escape. Although you trust the fleet-foot effort of a rapid horse, I cannot overtake you with my feet, but I can shoot and halt you with a wound. His deed sustained the final warning word. He shot an arrow through the centaur's back, so that the keen barb was exposed beyond his bleeding breast. He tore it from both wounds, and lifeblood spurting instantly, mixed with the deadly poison of Linnaean Hydra. This Nasus caught, and muttering, I shall not die unavenged, he gave his tunic, soaked with blood, to Daener as a gift, and said, Keep this to strengthen waning love. Now many years passed by, and all the deeds and labors of the mighty Hercules gave to the wide world his unequaled fame, and finally appeased the hatred of his fierce stepmother. All victorious returning from Ocalia, he prepared to offer sacrifice, when at Sineum, upon an altar, he had built to Jupiter. But tattling rumor, swollen out of truth from small beginning to a wicked lie, declared brave Hercules, Amphitryon's son, was burning for the love of Viole, and Deianera, his fond wife, convinced herself the wicked rumor must be true. Alarmed at the report of his new love, at first, poor wife, she was dissolved in tears, and then she sank in grievous misery. But soon, in an angry mood, she rose and said, Why would I give up my sorrow while I drown my wretched spirit in weak tears? Let me consider an effectual check. While it is possible, even before she comes, invader of my lawful bed, shall I be silent or complain of it? Must I go back to Calidian or stay? Shall I depart unbidden from my house? Or if no other method can prevail, shall I oppose my rival's first approach? O shade of Meliager, let me prove I am yet worthy to be called your sister. 
and in the desperate slaughter of this rival the world astonished may be taught to fear the vengeance of an injured woman's rage so torn by many moods at last her mind fixed on one thought she might still keep his love could certainly restore it if she sent to him the tunic soaked in nasus's blood unknowingly she gave the fatal cause of her own woe to trusting lycus whom she urged in gentle words to take the gift from her to her loved husband hercules he unsuspecting put the tunic on all covered with lernaean's hydra's poison the hero then was casting frankincense into the sacred flames and pouring wine on marble altars as his holy prayers were floating to the gods the hallowed heat striking upon his poisoned vesture caused echidna bane to melt into his flesh as long as he was able he withstood the torture his great fortitude was strong but when at last his anguish overcame even his endurance he filled all the wild vesa with his cries he overturned those hallowed altars then in frenzied haste he strove to pull the tunic from his back the poisoned garment cleaving to him ripped his skin he shriveled from his burning flesh or tightening on him as great strength pulled stripped with it the great muscles from his limbs leaving his huge bones bare even his blood audibly hissed as red-hot blades when they are plunged in water so the burning bane boiled in his veins great perspiration streamed from his dissolving body as the heat consumed his entrails and his sinews cracked brittle when burnt the marrow in his bones dissolved as it absorbed venom heat there was no limit to his misery raising both hands up toward the stars of heavens he cried come juno feast upon my death feast on me cruel one look down from your exalted seat behold my dreadful end and glut your savage heart oh if i may deserve some pity from my enemy from you i mean this hateful life of mine take from me sick with cruel suffering and only born for toil the loss of life will be a boon to me and surely is a fitting boon such as stepmothers give was it for this i slew busiris who defiled his temples with the stranger's blood for this i took his mother's strength from fierce antaeus that i did not show a fear before the spanish shepherd's triple form nor did i fear the monstrous triple form of cerberus and is it possible my hands once seized and broke the strong bull's horns and ellis knows their labor and the waves of strymphalus and the parthenian wood for this the prowess of these hands secured the amazonian girdle wrought of gold and did my strong arms gather all in vain the fruit when guarded by the dragon's eyes the centaurs could not foil me nor the boar that ravaged in arcadian fruitful fields was it for this the hydra could not gain double the strength from strength as it was lost and when i saw the steeds of thrace so fat with human blood and their vile mangers heaped with mangled bodies in a righteous rage i threw them to the ground and slaughtered them together with their master 
In a cave I crushed the Nemean monster with these arms, and my strong Nebcom held the widespread sky. And even the cruel Juno, wife of Jove, is weary of imposing heavy toils. But I am not subdued performing them. A new calamity now crushes me, which not my strength nor valor nor the use of weapons can resist. Devouring flames have preyed upon my limbs, and blasting heat now shrivels the burnt tissue of my frame. But still, Eurystheus is alive and well, and there are those who yet believe in gods. Just as a wild bull, whose body spears are rankling, while the frightened hunter flies away for safety, so the hero ranged over sky-pierced Ata, his huge groans, his awful shrieks resounding in those cliffs. At times he struggles with the poisoned robe, goaded to fury. He has raised great trees, scattered the vast mountain rocks around, and stretched his arms towards his ancestral skies. So, in his frenzy, as he wandered there, he chanced upon the trembling Lycus, crouched in the close covert of a hollow rock. Then, in a savage fury, he cried out, Was it you, Lycus, brought this fatal gift? Shall you be called the author of my death? Lycus, in terror, groveled at his feet and begged for mercy. Only let me live! But seizing on him, the crazed hero whirled him thrice and once again about his head and hurled him, shot as by a catapult, into the waves of the Euboic Sea. While he was hanging in the air, his form was hardened, as we know, raindrops may first be frozen by the cold air and then change to snow, and as it falls through whirling winds, may press so twisted into round hailstones. Even so has ancient lore declared that when strong arms hurled Lycus through the mountain air through fear, his blood was curdled in his veins. No moisture left in him. He was transformed into a flint rock. Even to this day, a low crag rising from the waves is seen out of the deep Euboean sea and holds the certain outline of a human form, so surely traced the wariest sailors fear to tread upon it, thinking it has life, and they have called it Lycus ever since. But, O oh, illustrious son of Jupiter, how many of the overspreading trees thick growing on the lofty mountain peak of Eta did you level to the ground and heap into a pyre? And then you bade obedient Philoctetes light a torch beneath it, and then take in recompense your bow with its capacious quiver full of arrows, arms that now again would see the realm of Troy. And as the pyre began to kindle with the greedy flames, you spread the Nemean lion's skin upon the top, and club for pillow you lay down to sleep, as placid as if, with abounding cups of generous wine, and crowned with garlands, you were safe, reclining on a banquet couch. And now on every side the spreading flames were crackling fiercely, as they leaped from earth upon the careless limbs of Hercules. He scorned their power. The gods felt fear for Earth's defender, and their sympathy gave pleasure to Saturnian Jove. He knew their thought, and joyfully he said to them, Your sudden fear is surely my delight, O heavenly gods. My heart is lifted up, and joy prevails upon me, in the thought that I am called the father and the king of this graceful race of gods. 
Your sudden fear is surely my delight, O heavenly gods. My heart is lifted up, and joy prevails upon me in the thought that I am called the Father and the King of all this grateful race of gods. I know my own beloved offspring is secure in your declared protection. Your concern may justly evidence his worth, which deeds great benefits bestowed. Let not vain thoughts alarm you, nor the rising flames of Eta. For Hercules, who conquered everything, shall conquer equally the spreading fires which now you see. And all that part of him, celestial, inherited of me, immortal, cannot feel the power of death. It is not subject to the poison heat, and therefore, since his earth life is now lost, him I'll translate, unshackled from all dross, and purified to our celestial shore. I trust this action seems agreeable to all the deities surrounding me. If any jealous god of heaven should grieve at the divinity of Hercules, he may begrudge the prize that he will know at least twas given him deservedly, and with this thought he must approve the deed. The gods confirmed it, and though Juno seemed to be contented and to acquiesce, her deep vexation was not wholly hid, when Jupiter, with his concluding words, so plainly hinted at her jealous mind. Now while the gods conversed, the mortal part of Hercules was burnt by Mulciber, and yet an outline of a spirit form remained. Unlike the well-known mortal shape derived by nature of his mother, he kept traces only of his father, Jove, and as a serpent when it is revived from its old age, casts off the faded skin, and fresh with vigor glitters in new scales. So, when the hero had put off all dross, his own celestial, wonderful appeared, majestic and of godlike dignity. And him, the glorious father of the gods, in the great chariot drawn by four swift steeds, took up above the wide encircling clouds, and set him there amid the glittering stars. End of Book 9, Part 1 Recording by Drew Altschul